Just imagine this. Free worldwide travel, business class flights, five-star hotels, award-winning restaurants, fine wines. And adventures along the way, some of them fun, like traveling worldwide with the British royal family. Some of them challenging, getting threatened, getting shot at, getting bombed, getting arrested, getting expelled. What do you have? My job as a foreign editor, producer and correspondent with the leading UK TV news outfit in the 70s and 80s. Boys Own Adventures, paid for by the accountants on the third floor. Thanks, guys. Hello and welcome, I'm Vernon Mann. This and following episodes are mostly tales from a time when news budgets were big, expenses rarely questioned, and the mobile phone still a twinkle in somebody's eye. No internet, no social media, no credit cards even, till the 80s. I'd like to share with you some of the crazy stuff that happened to me while on assignments in the UK and overseas. Lebanese wars, Iranian and Romanian revolutions, unrest in China, Afghanistan, Northern Ireland, assassinations, murders, hijacks and kidnaps, oil spill disasters and bad weather events, royal tours and honeymoons, quirky human stories, moving human stories, political dramas... The bizarre and, yes, sometimes funny things that happen along the way. Stuff that doesn't make the news, but is every bit as entertaining and often, dare I say it, sometimes more interesting than the news story itself. So what's it all about, this news business? Let's start in the newsroom. The last place you want to be if you're a frontline guy. You want to be out there where the story is, wherever that might be. We producers and reporters are required to carry an overnight bag and expected to respond positively and with enthusiasm when phoned in the middle of the night and told to get to the airport now, no matter how it might screw up your family life or social agenda, which of course it does. In return, the company, as mentioned, lets us live the good life while we're on the road. Sometimes, as in Afghanistan or Bosnia, there's not a lot of good life to be had. You can, of course, say, no, it's my grandmother's funeral or some such. But too many no's, and you'll find yourself never leaving the newsroom, which, fair enough, is what some colleagues want. But there are half a dozen of us nicknamed the Firemen, a fiercely competitive bunch who never say no to anything. Not just for our personal TV exposure, more for the sheer thrill of it all. The adventure, that's what it's all about. So one night you'll be having supper with the family. Next morning you'll be dodging bullets in a civil war in a country you've never been to before. There can't be that many jobs where you set off for work in the morning not knowing where in the world you might end up that night. It isn't always overseas, of course. It could be Birmingham, Bradford or Southampton. While you're there, said a news editor once, could you just pop up to Northampton for a quick interview? Won't take you ten minutes. Sometimes you'll set off on a story, get halfway there and be diverted to another, and sometimes to a third different location where something more newsworthy has just happened. We call these DFAs, different effing arrangements. Sometimes you spend a whole day just DFAing. I land at Heathrow one time after a month working in the Azores and get straight to a story in Berlin. Go to the office another day and end up in Baghdad for a month during the Iran-Iraq war. My lovely and patient wife Avril grows accustomed to me rushing out of the house shouting, call you when I get there. 
which in the days before mobile phones, it's not as easy as it sounds. Often it's days before I get a call through. The foreign desk will get calls from worried wives and girlfriends of camera crews asking A, where their other halves are, I haven't heard from him for days, and B, when might they be back? There's usually no answer to that last question. We had a crew kidnapped in Africa once who didn't get home for three months. Such is the nature of news you never know when you might be scrambled. On a canal boat holiday with my wife and baby son, the boat hire man comes banging on the door at first light and says excitedly, your office wants you to go to China now. It was a massacre on Tiananmen Square, Beijing. I'm gone in a cab within five minutes, leaving my wife to decide whether to abandon ship or not, and my boy wondering where his daddy had gone. I next see them six weeks later. For years I'm away from home for around six months out of twelve. A couple of days here, a couple of weeks there. Anniversaries missed, birthdays forgotten. I asked my grown-up son recently if he missed me when I was off on assignments. Not really, he replies dismissively. But he does remember some of the presents I brought back, like the latest electronic gizmos from China. One day I go to work expecting to cover Wimbledon tennis and end up in the aforementioned Azores for a month, covering a royal family honeymoon and getting a tan. We are there a week before Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson even get married. I send back reports of fine restaurants the royal couples really should visit, super beaches they would love. Back in London, envious colleagues fix a rag doll to the wall, name it Vernon and stick pins in it. The driving force behind such gambles is, of course, to beat the opposition, and mostly we do. On quiet days in the newsroom, us firemen sit staring hopefully at our screens watching news reports coming in from the news agencies, Reuters, Associated Press, United Press International, waiting for the big one. We suggest potential stories, mostly involving exotic locations, of course, and wonder anxiously why reporter A is lunching with the foreign editor. I try to hide my dismay when someone else gets sent on a story I thought might have been mine. In 1989, I'm given rare advance notice of an assignment. Afghanistan, to cover the withdrawal of Russian forces. Advance notice only because I had to have time to grow enough of a beard to blend in as a Mujahideen fighter. Keep it under your hat, says the editor, which I do. A couple of days on, though, a colleague notices a stubble on my chin. You lucky sod, he says, you've got Afghanistan, haven't you? That evening, he grudgingly buys me a pint and wishes me good luck. Alcohol is a huge part of life in the newsroom and on the road. Alcoholics Anonymous wouldn't have believed it. For a start, there's a bar on the premises, a hive of activity all day long, and a green room where lunchtime programme guests are plied with large gins before going on live, the hope being they let slip something they might later regret. There's a pub on the corner, a wine bar across the road. There's no escape. We perfect the boozy lunch, inviting people who might be useful as a contact to have a drink and a bite on us. Well, on the company, I suppose. Like West London's top cop, a chief superintendent based in Notting Hill, who is so keen to come to lunch, he turns up at 11 o'clock with his sergeant driving the police car. We have, I think, three pints each, or was it four? We have to do something to kill time because the restaurant hasn't yet opened its doors. Eventually, we get to our table where the cops order double gin and tonics while studying the wine list. We all have a couple of gins, then start on the wine, 
Two bottles of decent red and two of white, as I recall, might have been more. The super does most of the talking, that's why we've asked him. I realise he's suddenly being indiscreet, slagging off his colleagues. Then, yes, a scoop. An update on a double murder investigation. And whoa, the name of the suspect and details of when and where we can film his arrest. Great stuff. I lurch to the loo and scribble the bare details on the palm of my hand. No idea what we had to eat. A cheese board arrives, the wine is finished, the super roars, Bring on the port and brandy! Dear God... I need the loo again, and as I wash my hands afterwards, I realise with horror, oh God, I've washed away the scoop. The lunch comes to an end at last with a couple of what the super calls cleansing ales. Then he slams his empty glass on the table and orders his driver to sharpen up and get me back to the bloody station now. The driver, at least 20 times over the limit, totters off to get the police car, which he'd left parked crookedly on double yellow lines. We, of course, pay the massive bill. Sometimes we'll take each other out to lunch, one of us going down on expenses as a contact. One day there's a lunch in the corporate dining room across from the staff bar. We, I'm in foreign editor mode, are entertaining four senior Afghan Mujahideen guys in the hope of getting them to host one of our news teams in their trouble-torn country. As Muslims, they don't drink. Our lot do. Sort something out, says the deputy editor, already in a cold sweat at the thought of an alcohol-free lunch. I arrange two carafes of red wine at one end of the table, two carafes of cherry juice at the other. The lunch meeting's going well until one of the Afghans reaches for the wrong carafe and pours himself a hefty glass of alcohol. We tense, awaiting his reaction. There isn't one. In fact, he pours himself another a few minutes later, and another. They never did agree to help us. Later that year, it's Pakistan military intelligence who get me into Afghanistan. Lunch, nowadays a forgotten art form, is the way of doing business. You want to pitch a story idea? Lunch. Encourage a contact? Lunch. Having a boring morning? Lunch. Some of the company's most inspired ideas, and some of the silliest, are conceived over lunch and a glass of wine or two. It does get a bit out of hand, though and every now and then the company tries to curb our excess expenditure. They cross out booze on dinner expense claims. Camera crews tell the restaurants, put the booze down as puddings. They cross off a margarita from one reporter's claim. It's a bloody pizza, not a cocktail, responds the furious hack. As a young producer fresh from Australia, I'm shooting a news feature in Devon with one of our most experienced camera crews, award-winning Worldly Wise. Again, these were the days before credit cards, and as the producer, I'm in charge of the cash. We have a great lunch, including two bottles of claret at £19.50 each, selected by the crew. This is 1974, remember? Expensive plonk. Back at base, I put the expenses claim in and think no more about it. The next day, the news editor calls me in and splutters, I can't pass these. I cannot believe you spent so much company money on wine. I respond indignantly in the Anglo-Aussie accent I had then. Listen, mate, I say, nobody told me when I was interviewed for this job that I was expected to lower my bloody standards. And I storm arrogantly out of his office. I hear no more about the wine, a result indeed. Back at my desk, I'm congratulated by a sage old producer from World in Action, the first hard-hitting news documentary programme on ITV. He advises, think big and spend big, laddie but make sure you get a result. 
He keeps a filing cabinet with blank receipts from restaurants, taxi firms and hotels from all over the country. And if you have a job, say, in Manchester, he will supply you with the necessary, as they say. You call that fraud nowadays, I suppose. Whatever, his advice serves me well over the next few years, as I gaily hire Sikorsky helicopters, not quite Black Hawks as in the movie, but certainly military-grade monsters. I charter ocean-going boats, once an icebreaker. I book light aircraft by the dozen and Learjets by the score for stories around the world. The atmosphere in the newsroom and local bars is electric. It's a creative cloud cuckoo land. Men and women from telly and radio, mixing it with a Soho advertising crowd, authors, actors, chancers and fashion designers, one of whom I later marry. Our bosses take chances which often pay off and our ratings soar. We're like one big mad dysfunctional family with few reality checks. There's excessive drinking, outrageous behaviour. Couples are coupling in the basement, crews are doing drugs in the toilets. But come a big story, the bar will empty in seconds as news crews scramble to cover it and writers, producers and sub-editors rush across the road to the office to get the news on air. Crews are always ready, gear packed, camera batteries charged, passports in their bags. They sober up quickly in a crisis. They could be going to Wolverhampton or a war zone. They, we, see ourselves as modern-day adventurers. Our job is to get to the action as fast as we can and film it whatever it takes, wherever it is, exposing the villains, illustrating the plight of victims and emphasising the futility of war. We're always ready to go, and go we do. Ha, reading that last sentence back now makes me and my colleagues sound like complete gung-ho plonkers. But that's what it was like. So exciting. As you listen to these stories, and of course I hope you do, you might wonder why I've not named any of the news crews. This is a conscious decision. What happens on tour stays on tour is an old sporting rule, and I'm already bending it. Suffice to say, they're all great people, colleagues and friends. In these tales, there's little detailed analysis, the odd opinion maybe. I've tried not to dwell on the horrors I've seen. I may get some of the dates and sequences wrong. The stories come from memory, not diaries. I just hope to give you a flavour of what it was like covering these things without all the modern technology available today. The daft things we did to get to places. The silly things that happened on the way to the war. And a big thank you to my family for badgering me to write it all down. All journalists have unique memories of stories they've covered, many of them, I'm sure, more interesting than mine. And let's not forget all those who suffered and those journalists who died while doing the jobs they loved. The International Federation of Journalists says 65 reporters and media workers were killed in 2020. And let's not forget the thousands and thousands of ordinary people killed, maimed and made homeless by senseless and continuing conflicts around the world. Thanks for listening, and please join me next time when I take you on some impossible missions around the world. I'm Vernon Mann. See you soon. Thank you.